0: Amen and amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today um, and to join us in our study of the Psalms. We started this summer uh, just walking through the Psalms. We won't go through all of them. We're just going through uh, several over the summer. Then we'll begin Ecclesiastes in the fall. Next week, uh, we I, I mentioned uh, early on in this study that, next, that we would be having opportunity to hear from partner churches, sister churches. And so next week, Nathan... Uh, Oh, gosh, his last name is man, terrible. Nathan from Redeemer Church. That's just what I'll tell you. His name is, is going to be here. Uh, Nathan Johnson from Redeemer Church is going to be here uh, preaching through Psalm 46. It's an opportunity for, for you to see God's kingdom work, the things that he's doing in Springfield, get to know some of the leaders that we're closely connected with and partnered together with that we might... Uh, see the gospel go forward in Springfield. Today we're in Psalm 24 as titled the King of Glory uh, and and truly uh, that's what I hope and who I hope that you encounter today. As you're turning there let me just ask this question and get kind of set a frame of reference for us to be thinking through this. Are you ready to die? Are you prepared to die? Like I'm not saying, do you have your burial plot picked out? Like I know when somebody, some people think of that, they think, oh, I got to get a plot of land, I got to make out a will. That is not at all what I'm asking. I'm asking, are you prepared to die and leave this life and enter into the life to come? If you died right now, are you confident? Do you have assurance that you would enter into heaven? Now, I know that's an old school question of evangelism. Like, we don't ask those kind of questions anymore, right? Well, it's not cool to ask those kind of questions anymore. Uh, it, it's not right. That might be offensive to somebody. But, but truly, there may be no more important question for us to deal with. Pastor Dabo, one of the ministry partners that we have in Senegal, as a Muslim, was asked this question. He was in the midst of a firefight, he was a soldier, and the soldier next to him says to him, hey, It's real, <laughs> we could die. Are you ready to die? That question ate at him. He lived through that particular battle. That question ate at him for three years before he finally had his eyes open to the truth of his sin and God's grace, and he finally trusted Jesus. Well, I know, since I'm asking this question to a bunch of Christian folks sitting in a uh, well, let's let's just say let, let's not take anything for granted. I'm not trying to be offensive. Let's just, but but I'm asking the question of a bunch of people sitting in a church meeting. Let's say it like that sitting here asking this question to a bunch of people, sitting in a church meeting on a Sunday morning where the the day is nice, the sun is shining. there's other things to do, but you're sitting here that I think we could suggest that basically everybody in the room is immediately going to answer, yes, I'm ready, I'm prepared, I, I feel confident I can go to heaven. But let's not just brush this aside. Let's not just take it for granted. Let's just not assume anything. Let me ask it in a slightly different way that maybe will change the perspective. And the emphasis. Are you prepared to stand face to face with the creator of the universe? I'm not just talking about reside in heaven. I'm talking about look the creator of the universe in his eye. I, don't, I don't know how exactly that happens. He's not human like we are, but think of it. Are you ready? To see him face to face. To have the veil pulled back. Now, if he appeared right here, right now, in our presence, are you ready for that? Are you prepared to dwell in his presence forever? Unendingly. Without reprieve. To know and enjoy his presence Forever. That's different than just thinking of a city with gold streets and mansions that we get to reside in, right? Like, this is in the presence of the Creator God. Are you prepared for that? And here's the thing. I mean, we prepare ourselves for all kinds of things, right? Everything about our lives is preparation in some when we're little, we're preparing to learn how to walk, when we're learning how to walk, we're preparing to learn how to run, when we're old enough to go to school, we're preparing to live life in the world around us. When we uh, finish high school, where many of us will spend hours and hours and money upon uh, just drastic amounts of money to seek higher education, to prepare ourselves for some great career. We prepare ourselves to get married, we prepare ourselves to have children. We prepare ourselves even to retire. Some of us are disciplined enough that we start when we're really young so that we can live really nice when we're old. Some of us are less disciplined. And we hope Social Security will be there when we get there. It seems to me the more seriously we take these things, the more seriously we, we take these things that we prepare for, the, the more we're willing to do to prepare for them. I just wonder, are we really prepared? Are we really ready? Are we really, are we really ready? And I think there's a variety of answers that could be offered here. I'm, I'm not trying to get into your business and make you feel guilty or conviction. I think there's really a reality of a variety of answers. Some of us are ready. Like I asked that question and we are Prepared. We're not afraid of this question. In fact, we, we recognize, like, like, like Paul in the book of Philippians, we recognize that to live is Christ, to die is gain. That we actually look forward to the day that we stand in His presence. But as long as we're here, we'll fight hard to serve Him to His glory, to the, name, uh, to the fame of His name. And some, well, we're just not sure. I said a prayer when I was young, and I walked an aisle, and I got baptized, and I think I believe these. I, I can answer the questions right on the test. Man, I feel really uncertain about that. I'm just not sure. I Feel nervous even thinking about it. In fact, I'd rather think about preparing to retire. I'd rather be prepared to retire than thinking about being prepared to die. In fact, you're making me a little nervous. I'm just unsure. The unfortunate reality is, I think that another response is that some of us think we're prepared. Because we're really not. But we're really not. We think we're prepared, but the truth is there's really no fruit that demonstrates that preparation in us at all. It's a sad state, I think. It's a sad commentary on American life that probably more people in America are prepared to retire than die. I doubt this person is here, but one final response I think that we could find this morning. I don't think this person is here on a sunshiny summer morning. I just don't really care. But in case you are, there's something here for you today. In case you are here today, you need to hear what this psalm has to say today. You see, the reality is there is no more important question that we could answer. There is no more important thing in our lives. There is no more pressing matter to, to be prepared to die. To meet God face to face. To dwell in his presence forever and ever. We can hide it. We can, we, we, we can, we can try to hide it and cover up. In, in the pursuit of so many other things. We can, we can give our life and our energy and our time and our money. We can, we can give ourselves to the pursuit of preparation for jobs and careers and retirement. We can give ourselves to that. Not thinking about displacing the thought of death. But we cannot displace the truth of it. Every one of us, save the fact that the Lord may come back at any moment, and honestly, I think that'd be great, but but if He doesn't return, we will all die. Are we prepared to do that? You see, the reality is, is that that's the most important thing that we can prepare ourselves for, or our children for, our friends and our families. Because this life is short, eternity is forever. Who can enter in and dwell in God's presence? Will he accept just anyone? What does he require? What must we do then to prepare? If this is so important, what must we do? Well, the reason I'm asking these questions, the reason I'm pressing on these buttons, the reason I'm getting into your business just a little bit, asking you to really do an inventory and to think and and in some senses celebrate, and in other senses, I, I hope there's something more going on. Is because the, 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 the psalm today, Psalm 24, David hits us in the face with this question. At the heart of this question, he confronts us with the most important question that we could ask ourselves, the most important set of ideas or perspectives that we could ask ourselves. Are we ready? Are we prepared to meet God face to face? What does it take? Who can enter in? Well, let's read the psalm and see what he has for us. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? You hear that question? Who shall live in the presence of God? He who is He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. You see, David sets this psalm out. He sets these two ideas out at the very beginning of this psalm that set up the whole rest of what he's got to say. In verses 1 and 2, he teaches us, he shows us that God is the source of all things. He is the creator of all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of, their, uh, their of the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He owns it. He is the source of it. He's the one that created it. It's in Him that all things find their purpose. And and, and notice, He's not just talking about inanimate objects. He's not just talking about the trees and the rivers and the lakes. He's not just talking about the stars and the mountain, the sun and the moon. He's talking about the people who dwell in it. The world and those who live therein. He's talking about us. God is the source of us. And then the second thing he demonstrates to us in this text is that God is the standard for all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And he asks his question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And then he lays out the criteria. You see, God doesn't just set the standard. He is the standard. Especially for you and for me. I mean, the the reality is we are created in His image. We were created to be reflections of Him in His creation. We're not just given a standard to follow. We're given an identity to live out. We are called to be reflections of Him in this world. We should look like Him. We should have attributes and characteristics that resemble him. To know ourselves, we must know him. And when we know him, we can begin to know ourselves. And neither of these two ideas, David doesn't look at us for affirmation. He's not asking us our opinion. He's not writing these words as if in some way they're supposed to be something to debate. He sets them out just simply as truths. In fact, it doesn't require our affirmation in any way. It doesn't matter if a person considers God, God or not. God is still God. We don't have to agree with them to be true. Our affirmation of them doesn't make them more true or less true. They just are true. But we all know people that are just filled with these, these bits of meaningless trivia, right? Like fountains of of senseless, meaningless trivia, it doesn't matter if we know these facts or not. Well, these are not those kind of facts. There's implication here. There's serious implications here. God is the source of all things. Therefore, He has authority over all things. You you see, because God created everything, and this is His argument in verses 1 and 2, He owns everything because He created everything. He owns everyone because he created everyone. Authority is attached directly to the fact that God is creator. Because he's the source of life, he is also the one who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. He gets to determine purpose. He gets to determine what isn't purpose. The, the picture of this is demonstrated for us in Jeremiah 18. God calls Jeremiah and says, go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah shows up at the potter's house. And the potter's making a vessel. We don't know exactly what he's making. He's making something, you know. Maybe he's making a big vase that he's going to send flowers home to his mom in. I, I don't know, but he's making something. And it says that the vessel was spoiled in his hands. What I mean, it, 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 it would be like if I was the one doing it. Like it would crumple up and fold over, right? Be ruined. That's what happened in this, in this vessel in this potter's hand. And He didn't just throw away the clay. He took it and he formed it into something different. And God makes a point out of that, a lesson to Jeremiah. He says to him, you can go read read about it, Jeremiah 18.6 is kind of where it starts at. He says, hey, house of Israel, don't I have the same right over you that this potter has over the clay? So no one questions, no one questions at all that the potter has every right to do with the lump of clay that he desires because the potter is the designer. He is the source of the vessel. He is the way that the vessel comes to being. So everyone recognizes the potter can do what he wants. If the vessel doesn't look exactly like he wants, he has every right to take it and reform it, reshape it, put pressure on the right places, press in, let let, let loose, You know, shape the vessel as he pleases. No one questions that. Because the the, the potter is the source of the the vessel's being. The, The same is true for Jeremiah. The same is true for Israel. The same is true for you and me. You see, God, He didn't just create, He has authority. Doctrinally speaking, this lends itself to His sovereignty. The reality is God sits in authority over all things. If there is any authority in heaven and on earth, it finds its source in God. Can God do as He wants? Can God set a standard that He pleases? Can God determine what is right and wrong? Can God... Does He have the right to rule over us in that way? The answer is yes. Even if you don't agree. The answer is yes. God is the source of all things. Therefore... He has authority over all things. Well, God is the standard for all things. He's not simply setting a standard. He is the standard. Therefore, any who enter His presence must measure up. Doctrinally speaking, this is referring to His holiness, to His purity, to His distinctness, to His separation, to His other being. He is holy. We were created in His image. We too were to be holy. We were created to be His reflection. We were created to reflect His holiness. If then we're going to enjoy relationship with Him, if we're going to enjoy His presence, if we are going to be prepared to live in His presence forever, if we are ever going to ascend His hill or stand in His holy place, then we must be holy. This is His demand. In fact, you see it in both covenants, old and new. This isn't just something that he does first. It's something he expects of those he does it for. Leviticus 19.2, writing to the Israelites. This is one of uh, three, four, five places that is written in Leviticus. I think it's three. Uh, Levit- Leviticus nineteen one and 2, the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He expects holiness. He demands holiness. If people are going to reside in his presence, they must also be holy. Well, you think, oh, that's the law. I mean, I, that's, that's, we're under grace. We're not under law anymore. That requirement is not, it's not on us. Oh, but it is. You see 1st Peter as Peter's writing to the new testament church, the scattered suffering church, a church that knows persecution because of its faith in Christ, a church that understands joy in the midst of suffering. He writes these words, chapter 1 verse 15 and 16, but as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, we can argue against this. We can fight against this. We could try to, I don't know, do some gymnastics around it, some, some hermeneutical gymnastics and make it not true. But the reality is, is that Peter, a preacher of God's grace, calls God's people to holiness. This is his standard. And we can't argue against it because the source is the sovereign creator who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who has the authority to set this standard standard well what is this holiness what is this that we're talking about well david kind of clarifies it for us and it's not broken out in an exhaustive sense but he gives us some clues here who can ascend the hill of the lord who can be in his presence is the question and who shall stand in his holy place like who can reside in the in the face of the holy god in the holiness of god who can do this he who has clean hands pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. Let me just break it down. I'm going to give four words, four, four ideas here. Pure hands. That means our actions. It speaks to what we do. The Sins of omission and sins of commission. The things we do and the things we don't do. I mean, just as an example, sometimes when we commit a sin, well, not all the time, not sometimes, all the time, when we commit one sin, we don't commit something that's not a sin. Like, to commit a sin is leads us to a sin of omission. You see how this works. So so, so let's just use this example and try to draw this out. God calls us as Christians and calls us in holiness to be holy husbands. If the husband goes out and he's looking at pornography, that's a sin in and of itself. But he's also not doing the thing he's been called to do, loving his wife like Christ loved the church, there's a sin of commission and a sin of omission. You see? So as we give ourselves into these actions that lead us in rebellion against God, we aren't doing the very things that God has called us to. He calls us to pure, pure hands, and then he says he calls us to pure hearts, and this presses past our actions. This isn't just about what we do. It's about what we think, our motives, and our desires. The reality is, and Jesus confronted this in in, uh, his interactions with the Pharisees, he told them, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He said to them, if you've hated your brother, you've already committed murder. There's a reality that the motives and the purposes, the intents of our heart, the things that we think, these are what drives our actions. And if we're going to have pure hands, we must also have pure hearts. If we don't have pure hearts, we're not going to have pure hands. If we're going to be holy, we've got to have these two things. But he doesn't stop there. He calls us to pure worship. This is at the heart of it. Because to do anything other than honor God first, to give our souls to another, to devote ourselves to some other purpose, is not the holiness God has called his people to. He's called us to a pure worship. Let me just deal with one of the answers I gave earlier. The, the reality is, is that some of us sitting in this room aren't certain. In fact, we get very nervous when we think about facing God face to face. I wonder if the reason that we struggle so, if we face so much doubt and so little assurance in the salvation that God has promised, <clears throat> I wonder if it's because we're so, so intent upon pursuing other purposes, devoting ourselves to other things than the glory and honor and worship of God. We're so intent upon establishing our own little kingdom, we have very little room for seeing Him glorified. He calls us to pure hands, pure heart, pure worship, and pure word. That our words, that we speak truth, we don't lie, And I think in in some sense, I think that this speaks not just to what we say, but how we say it. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that we're to speak the truth in love. We're not supposed to run around using truth as a hammer to beat people down and crush them, to heap guilt and condemnation upon them. We're supposed to speak truth with love or to see it as Jesus has portrayed it to us, truth with grace. See, truth by itself is harsh, it's hurtful, it's condemning. But that's not how it's been brought to us. It's been brought in love and in grace. It, it comes showing us the reality of our depths and de- de- dependence upon uh, Jesus Christ, upon the depths of neediness before God, our lack of holiness. His word comes to us, but not just simply to condemn us, but that we might see the truth of his grace. You see, the reality is, is that we can't have one without the other. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how Jesus portrayed it. That's not how Jesus exemplified it. He showed us truth and grace. He showed us truth in love. The reality is we can't just be about grace either. We can't just be about love because if you separate her out from the truth, it's neither. Love without truth is not really love. To affirm a person in their sin is not to love them. It must be, It's truly to, to not love them. Well, I don't want to be offensive to anybody. I don't want to hurt their feelings. The most offensive thing is someone that knows the truth that won't speak the truth because they love the person so deeply and desperately. I think that's much more offensive. He calls us this holiness that has pure hands, pure heart, pure worship, pure word, but herein lies the problem. Is at the heart of David's question, who can ascend this hill of God? Who can stand in the presence of God's holiness? This person can. How can I? Only those who are pure from the inside out. Who can measure up to this? Who can expect blessing and righteousness from God? Who can be the ones who who stand in front of him and say, now give me the blessing and righteousness because I'm pure of of hands, I'm pure of heart, I'm pure in worship, and I'm pure in my word. Who who can do that? It's an unfortunate reality that much of the world, much of the world thinks they can't. Let me just illustrate this with you. You're familiar with the cross chart. We use it around here quite a bit. I've, I've adapted it a little bit. And, and, and the reality is that there's a whole world out there that lives among, that we live among that believes that they can have this without having Christ. And so I developed a cross chart with no Christ. And what it is is two lines. And here's, the, here's the, the, the reality of the situation. They have no understanding of who God is. They have no understanding of His holiness and no understanding of His authority, but in some way think that they're good enough to live in it. You see, they've denied God's sovereignty. They've denied God's holiness and determined that this is the standard. I am the standard. If you don't like it, well, you, that's your truth, not mine. And they think these two lines run parallel. They think these two lines are okay, and, ah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to die. But they're not. <clears throat> to be honest, I think this is a specifically American perspective, maybe Western world perspective. <clears throat> maybe a, a, a place, a perspective of a, of a people who have lived too long in some sort of Christendom and are simply Christian because it's cultural. The people that we've been working with in Senegal, they don't think this way at all. Not at all. They, they feel no assurance at all when they consider the holiness of God. They don't feel good about meeting him. They don't look forward to it. All they have is uncertainty. All they have is question. You see, the truth is, is it's not just people in Senegal. It's people of every other religion other than Christianity. The the people in Senegal that we work with, they're they're Muslim. They follow Muhammad, and there is no assurance in Muhammad because you must be good enough. And so the cross chart that would depict their life is the cross chart with no cross. You see, they have an understanding of God's holiness. They're not even afraid to talk about it. They enjoy talking about it. And they even have some semblance of some sense of understanding of their, their, their sinfulness. But in some way, they hope, they think, they plead with the idea, they, they beg, they long to be the one who climbs that hill, who by their own efforts raises their bar so that it meets with God's. Knowing. Not knowing. If it ever will. When you ask them this question, this is the reason it ate at Dabo for so long. When you ask them this question, it scares them Deeply. Who? Who can enter in? Who can ascend that hill? I sin and I keep sinning. I keep sinning. See, the thing is, they're not alone. Anyone who's confronted with the holiness of God will see their. Sinfulness. Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, is he has this vision. He's brought up into the throne room of God. He sees the majesty, the glory, the holiness of God before him. The train of God's robe fills the temple. The the foundations of the temple are shaken. there's, There's angels surrounding the throne, seraphim on each side of him, and they are singing, holy, holy, holy. Emphasizing the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And Isaiah is standing there in the presence of the holiness of God. He doesn't celebrate, he doesn't jump up and down and cheer. He laments. He laments and he says, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. I don't know if it's on the screen, but it's, let me just read it to you if it's nice. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that that cross chart shows two diverging lines, two lines that will never meet. They go on and on and on and there is no way by our own power in our own might. You see, we're standing here in the midst of the depths of this problem. Who can ascend to the Lord, to ascend the Lord's hill? Who can stand in His holy place? Can we be prepared to die? Can we be prepared to face him face to face? This is true of all of us. None of us measure up. At some point we have all sinned by what we have done or what we haven't done. We have all sinned in our motives, our desires and our thoughts. We have all sought after lesser glories. We have all at some point lied or spoken truth with the intent to manipulate and coerce that we might get our own way. We have all sinned, every last one of us, none of us measure up. And here at the end of verse six of the psalm is this word, Selah. It's a pause, That's where the music's supposed to pause. Everything stops, and it is pregnant with the reality of this problem. Who? Who can ascend? Who can stand? I'm grateful that the psalm doesn't end there. That we're not left sitting in this problem. We're, we're not left waiting all that long. The psalm continues. And it changes perspective from asking the question to bearing witness that one does, that one has, that one will. You see, David presents this call that goes out. Open the gates. Make way for his entry. Because there is one who is worthy to ascend the hill. There is one worthy to stand in the presence of God's holiness. He is the king of glory. So the question quits being who can. But who is this king that did? Who is this king of glory? Who is he? The one who called out, oh, oh. Uh, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who were they preparing that he might enter? Who is this King of glory? Who is he? He says he's the Lord strong and mighty. He is the, the Lord. Uh, they, oh gosh, I've lost my place. He, he, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? You see, the beauty of this psalm is that it presents the problem, but it also presents the answer. It shows us the truth and the reality that one has entered into the presence of God. There has been one who ascended to His holy hill. The the history of this psalm was written originally, I think, to to celebrate the bringing of the Ark Ark of the Covenant up with David. But the early church read this psalm, sang this psalm, celebrated this psalm on the day that our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. On the day that he stood on that mountain outside of Jerusalem and he ascended from among his apostles and he went into heaven. The, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus ascended. He entered into the presence of this holy God. And he sits there today. Jesus is the king of glory whose ascension into his father's presence prepares us to live with God forever. Jesus is the king of glory whose ascension into his father's presence prepares us to live with God forever. Jesus is the king of glory who fought on our behalf and won he went to battle with death and sin, and he put it to death. He put it away. He, put it, he, he removed its power. That's why Paul says, O death, where is your sting? Because Jesus Christ, the King of glory, fought and won. He died on the cross and three days later rose from the grave that he might ascend to his father. Jesus is the King of glory who deserves all honor and glory. You know why they're worshiping here, why they're excited, why they're ecstatic, why they're glorifying this King of glory? Because as the one who makes us able, as the one who goes in and enters in, he is the one that shows himself worthy to be worshipped. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. It's a name for God. That's God. He is the one. He, He sets the standard, but he also makes us able to meet the standard. Jesus is the King of glory who deserves all honor and glory. Jesus is the King of glory who is all that God requires. He is pure in his hands. The writers of the New Testament are clear. Hebrews four fifteen. for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't just speak to his hands; it speaks to his heart. He is pure of hands and pure in heart he never was a sin of omission, a sin of commission. He never did anything wrong. He always did what he was supposed to do. He always had the right motives. He always had the right intent. His thoughts were always pure. And he was pure of worship. John twelve twenty seven through 28, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I come to this hour. This is the reason I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, Jesus came not to be glorified, but to glorify his Father. Jesus came that God might be worshipped. Jesus came and was pure in his worship at every step, at every stage. When he faced Difficulty, when he faced the cross, he did not in any way long for anything other than the Father's glory. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. God answered him, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is pure in his hands. He's pure in his heart and he is pure in his word. He spoke truth with grace. This is what he did. The New Testament is replete with it. I can read verse upon verse upon verse that shows you this is who Jesus is. He is the king of glory who has received blessing. You hear it in, and go back to those characteristics in the middle of the Psalm. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord listen he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation Jesus is the king of glory and who has received these things and the beauty of it is that he not kept them for himself but that in we might enjoy them too this is how the generations of those who seek him will be known a people who are blessed the people who are righteous the people who stand in the presence of a holy God who are blessed In the presence of a holy God. There's a perspective we don't like to think about often. and There's a perspective that we need to think about often. There's no one who dwells outside the presence of a holy God. But only His holy people are those who are blessed in His presence. Only His holy people are the ones who are given righteousness. it's those people he makes this, that he gives this to. And go back to Isaiah's story. You know what happens after he confesses, after he laments? You see, Isaiah doesn't lean in on his his lineage. He doesn't say, oh, I'm in God's holy presence, but I'm a son of Abraham. He doesn't doesn't look at the law and say, look, I've obeyed the law. He, He laments. You know what happens after his confession? After his lamenting of his own sin and his lack of worthiness to be there? Isaiah 6, 6-7 says, Then one seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You see, Isaiah was able to be there because God allowed him to to be there. God atoned for his sin. He covered his sin. He made his sin go away that he could stand there in righteousness. Consider Paul. Paul, you know, he's a saint. He's a, he, write, he, he, wrote, he wrote Bible. He planted churches. I mean, he used of God in mighty, mighty ways. In the midst of his ministry, he writes the letter to the Roman church. He'd longed to go there, but I'm in some way, I'm glad he never made it, because if he had made it when he wanted to, we'd never have this letter of Romans to, to read and study and to understand the gospel more fully. In Romans 7, he struggles with the war that rages within him. He recognizes the war of his flesh against the war of his soul. He recognizes his flesh seeking to do the things he shouldn't do, and his soul not longing to do them. He says, I know what I should do, but I end up doing the things I shouldn't, and I know what I shouldn't do, but I end up doing uh, uh, those things anyway. Anyway. And he comes to this conclusion. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24 through 25, he says, Wretched man that I am. Now, just think about that. He is not a new Christian. This is the middle of his ministry. He's probably been a Christian at this point, a pastor, a leader of churches, a planter of churches, a writer of Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, worker of miracles, for maybe somewhere around 20 years by this point. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, he recognizes that in his own nature, apart from God's power and his work through Jesus Christ, he is nothing but a wretch. But because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, he can serve God with his mind with his inner being. The truth is that not only the likes of Paul and Isaiah need some way to find God or to see, find some way to cross the gap, to, to close the gap of God's holiness and our sinfulness. You see those lines, whether we like it or not, will always be diverging unless someone does something. And that's why I so appreciate this cross chart. When I first found it and saw it, it seemed to suddenly make so much sense. You see, the cross isn't just important for the moment of conversion. Yes, the cross is important for the moment of conversion because we see the holiness of God and we see the sinfulness of man. But the story of the Christian life is that we, like Paul, that we, like Isaiah, standing in God's presence, will recognize our sinfulness in light of his holiness. And the closer we get to his holiness, the more we'll recognize our sinfulness. How in the world can we ascend the hill of the Lord? How in the world can we stand in his holy place? How in the world can you and I be prepared to face God face to face? cross the cross is the reason that you and i can enter in and dwell in god's presence he won't just accept anyone but he does accept everyone who comes as a result of the cross of jesus christ spurgeon writing about this psalm makes this comment in his um In his commentary on it, he writes, Dear reader, it is possible that you are saying, I shall never enter into into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him, follow in his footsteps, and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. Trust him. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the King of glory whose ascension into his Father's presence prepares us to live with God forever. You know, sometimes we paint over the picture of his ascension. We paint past and we don't think too much on it. We think, oh, the cross and the resurrection. And the reality is, is that those two working in conjunction are what make us holy and acceptable. They make us righteous in God's sight when we place our faith in him. But can you be certain That Jesus is righteous. Yes, you can because he ascended. He climbed that hill and sat in the throne room of God. He sits there today waiting for the day that he is told to come back and get his people. You see, we can be certain that Jesus did all that was necessary because God didn't send him away. He said, come in and sit down. Brothers and sisters, he is the king of glory whose ascension into his father's presence prepares us to live with God forever. So... Are you prepared to live with God forever? I want to go back to some of those answers as we close this up. Some of you think you're prepared, and you're not. I'm not saying that to be a jerk. I'm not saying that to cause some sort of conflict in you. I'm saying that because it is true. You think that in some way God is going to find you acceptable because, hey, I'm not really that bad a person. I mean, I've never killed anybody, right? I try to do good. I mean, come on, I showed up at church on a Sunday when the sun's shining for crying out loud. God will accept me. If you do not have pure hands, pure heart, pure worship, And pure word, he won't. And if you don't trust in the word who does, in the one who does, he won't. And I don't care if you've sat in church for 80 years or this is your first time through the door. I love you enough to tell you the truth. You cannot stand in his presence by your own power. But I know who, I know one who can, and who can make you able to do it too. So would you trust him today? Would you put away the pride and the arrogance and the fear of what people will think and trust in him alone? Be prepared to face him face to face, that if he shows up in this moment... you would cheer and you would honor him rather than cower in fear. Are you prepared? Some of you aren't sure. Maybe you're prepared and you just don't have assurance. Maybe it's because you spend so much time chasing after every other thing but being prepared to stand in the presence of a holy Would you hear the words that he gave his covenant people, not the law in Leviticus, the grace of god in 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 Peter, because he who has called you first Peter, let me go back to it, quote it so I or read it so I don't misquote it first peter one fifteen through sixteen as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct pursue. Being what he's created you to be. Pursue being the holiness that he has said you are. You see, we don't do this because that in some way makes us more acceptable. We don't do this because in some way that makes us more more, more worthy. We do it because He says we are worthy. We do it because He says we are acceptable. We do it because He has said we are holy. We do it because He has said we are righteous. We do it because He has made us righteous. We simply make our lives match. We strive to make our lives match. What He has said is true. Brothers and sisters, that is where the joy in knowing the Lord is. That's where the assurance comes from in walking in His presence. I don't stand here week after week confronting sin and calling us to look at Jesus simply so I can say I did something. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, to know the joy of the Lord that doesn't come in the pursuit of the world, that comes in the pursuit of holiness in Him. I long for you for that. My great desire for this church that we might celebrate together the joy of the Lord, but I know, I am convinced by the Scripture that that doesn't happen if we do anything other than pursue the holy name that we have been given. Are you prepared? Some of you are. As you sit here and you listen to this, you're enthralled, you're excited, you're anticipating this day. You know that to live is Christ, that if you remain here, there's fruitful ministry for you to do, but to die is gain because, oh, oh, it's going to be better. Because we know that for the one who has trusted in Christ, our best days are yet to come. Let me encourage you to never forget this. Let me encourage you to never look past it or take it for granted. Let me encourage you to look so closely at the holiness of God that you continue to see your sinfulness revealed that you might walk in repentance. J.C. Ryle writing, it's actually from the commentary that he wrote on the book of Luke, which I read a lot of. <laughs> so uh, if you were here for the last two years, you, you know why I say that. But he writes this. He says, Above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, guilt guilt, and undeserving. This, after all, is the true secret of a thankful spirit. It is the man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality he deserves nothing but hell. This is the man who will, daily, who, who will be daily blessing and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well, excepting, excepting upon a root of deep humility. You see, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, those who are excited to face God, who know and are certain of your your salvation, let me encourage you, don't take it for granted. Look deeply into who God is and let your sin be revealed that you might celebrate more that he has called you righteous and that you will be blessed in his presence. Are you prepared to meet our creator, our sovereign, holy God, face to face. I pray today you will be. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Desperately need you. Because in our own power and by our own might, we are unable. We are unable to measure up to your standard. We are unable to enter your presence. We are unable to do the work required to ascend your hill. We do not have the stamina. We do not have the endurance. We do not have the fortitude. We do not have the will. But by your power and through your might, you have made it possible by your Son. And so I would just ask, Father, by your Spirit, rest heavy on this church today. That those who are ready but don't have assurance, that they'd find assurance in Christ today and a desire to live holy as you are holy. For those that are celebrating, that are looking forward to the moment that we stand in your presence, that we're ushered in as you encourage them by your grace that you, you have made them holy. You have made them righteous. You bless them in your presence. That they might celebrate you and you alone, that they would boast in you and you alone. And Father, for those who think they're ready, who think they're prepared, but who are not. Would you open their eyes to the truth, just like you did, my friend, Davo? Would you help them to see? Would you help them to know? Would you give them faith to believe and make them righteous? Father, we need you. So we pray these things, Jesus, in your name, Spirit, depending upon your power. Each week we come to this time to respond, to hear the Word, to consider the Word.